my friends who listen to Future Primitive, it's uh, time to be together with Max Dashu again. Max Dashu founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 and documented women's history from an international perspective. She built a collection of 15,000 slides and 30,000 digital images. Uh, I'm going to try to shorten this as much as possible because I know you're familiar with this. She gives live visual presentations. She has several publications. Recently, a coloring book that she will mentioned to you when uh, I stop with my presentation. And what we've been doing is we've been going through her recently published book, Witches and Pagans, chapter by chapter, basically every month. And uh, so now we are at a chapter called Kailachan Desir and Hags. But uh, Max, please tell us about your latest publication. Yes, we. I, I just put out a new book. It's different than these more scholarly ones. It's a Deosophy Coloring Book of Goddesses, Spirits, and Ancestors. And it's a coloring book, a very, very global spectrum from every place, pretty much. And it has uh, 50 drawings. There's actually more in it because some have a couple on on the page, each with some background information about them. So you can still indulge your mythological, you know, hankerings just to be able to read about them and get, you know, the the in-depth a little bit. And uh, so anyway, that's just newly out. And uh, they're flying off the shelf. People are buying two, three, six, ten. (laughs) You know, so it's it's. Something good for the youth, if you know the someone who's not necessarily going to read something with footnotes might be able to absorb it better through. I just basically had to render all of these sculptures or codexes or whatever they were as drawings so that it could be a coloring book. So here we are in our journey through witches and pagans at uh, chapter six, and it's the perfect time of year to talk mm. about the divine old woman um, coming up on the solstice here. So um, I'll let you open open the conversation, Max. Yes. Well, you know, there's so many different forms of the old woman in, you know, this European tradition that I'm exploring and so I look at Irish forms, especially the Kalyach, which means the old woman in Irish. 
And it means actually the veiled one. Uh, Kaya is a mantle. It's related to the word pallium in Latin, which is what the priest wears. So it's something you throw over your shoulders, basically. But in Irish, it came to mean old woman, you know, based on the idea of an old woman with a shawl. And there are all these different levels to her story because the literature, there's a poem that was written down around 900 that was written by a monk because everything written then was, was written by them. But, uh, and, and so his story about her makes her kind of a pitiful figure, an old nun who isn't really happy to be a nun. And she's really wishing that she could be back uh, rowing, Along, riding along with uh, Charmaid, her lover, and consorting with kings and drinking mead in beautiful robes. And now she only has a cast-off smock to wear. Mm. So this is kind of like a terminal point in a way. They're trying to do away with another figure that underlies that story, which is this intensely powerful old woman. She's really an ancestor of uh, nations and peoples. And the oldest name we have for her in Irish is Shantin, which means the old woman, literally. And she existed from the long eternity of the world. This is what the introduction to that poem I just spoke about says about her. Well, you say and she's, so, sorry to interrupt you, but I love this. You say she's more ancient than the present form of the earth. Uh-huh. I'm not sure what part you're looking at there, but yeah, she's, I mean, she is extremely ancient and actually her, her age is proverbial. Uh, it's a sign of her power that she's existed for so long. And so they say that she's the epitome of longevity. And the one, one of the proverbs in Kanach puts her in a triad of extremely ancient beings, three great ages the age of the yew tree, the age of the eagle, the age of the Kalyach Vera. Mm. Now, Vera, that, that added part there, refers to Bear, the Bear Peninsula in southwestern Ireland. And this is an area that's mythically much connected with the old woman. You know, there are rocks there that are named after her and after her bull, and there are stories that are told about them in some very old Irish literature. And so... Uh, you'll often see the name as Kalyachbera. And this name, in turn, has been applied to various megalithic monuments around the island because one of the aspects, she has so many aspects we can talk about here, of the Kalyach is that she is a megalith builder. And a lot of times this takes place not as you would think about somebody, you know, constructing something architecturally, but she created the megalithic monuments by tossing boulders from hilltop to hilltop. Mm-hmm. So in this folk tradition, you know, we can say she's a goddess. Certainly she is a goddess. She has this eternal power to her. And, but yeah, we could also say she's a giantess because there are many references to her huge size. And when people used to talk about giantesses, I didn't used to really feel very interested in it. It just sort of seemed, I don't know, you know, it's like there are fairy tales about giants and giantesses, and it didn't really grab me. But as I looked into it more deeply, and especially as we get to the Norse material, the, the giantesses loom very large as old woman figures 
in Scandinavia. Uh, the, the giantess in a lot of folk traditions in Europe actually goes back to the most primeval levels. You know, before you have like these really class-ranked patriarchal societies, the really deep layers of folk memory is talking about giantesses in the context of the bones of the earth. They live in the rocks. They live in caves. They're underground beings. They're uh, creatures that exist as the Kaliak does from the long eternity of the world. So they're really the primeval powers of the natural world. And so that that's another way to think about this name giantess. But there are various stories when I get to the, in the chapter on the Kaliak and Diser and Hags, when I get to the Scottish tradition, there's quite a bit there about that giantess aspect, although they don't use that word. But they're talking about her as being so huge that when she waded through uh, one of the lakes, one of the deep lakes in Scotland, or even some of the firths, the the ocean passages, like a fjord kind of, that um, exist between two two long ridges um, along the coast, they talk about her wading in them and the water only coming up to her knees. You know, so yeah. that that's a really huge woman. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and and she can create islands. She can she yes. can actually manipulate the shapes of the earth. Yeah, and they talk about her plowing, and then there will be like a huge crevice in the earth that she turns up with her plow that comes to be called the hag's furrow you know, what she's plowed. Mm-hmm. And so she plows various fairy hills, and there are even marked places in the landscape, like natural formations, that are referred to as her writing, Scribna Kaliach, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So, you know, or she, she turn, takes the form of a boulder on top of some of these hilltops. So, so those are some of the, the large aspects of her and then there's also this great age so the the poem that i referred to in the beginning which is called the lament of the old woman of bear yes relates that she passed into seven periods of youth so that every husband used to pass to death from her of old age so that her grandchildren and great-grandchildren were tribes and races you know so she outlives all of these husbands. And in some of the stories, this seems to be connected, particularly in Scotland, with the idea that every year at a certain time of the year, a certain magical time, she goes to drink from a certain pool. And it seems as if this might be a pool of regeneration. And, you know, she, she drinks from this and then she's renewed. And some of the later stories use this story to try and kill her off. And so there's a taboo that she has to drink on that certain holiday before any dog is heard to bark. Yeah, and the dog. in the story, she gets down there too late and the dog barks. And this is this foretells her end. And so she she pronounces this verse before she expires. It was early that the dog spoke, and she repeats this several times, mm-hmm. ere I drank from the waters of whatever it was called. You know, so um, dogs are sometimes the antagonists of the old hag figures in Europe. You have a lot of stories 
either about the Kalyach, but more often about the Gleshtik. The Gleshtik is a fairy woman who is part deer, and she's really the, the goddess of the deer. And so she herds the deer up and over, roaming across the, the hills in Scotland, and she protects them. And sometimes if she gets annoyed at one of them, she may release it to be taken by one of the hunters. But she, her protection extends to the fact that if any hunter was to take a deer and then not fully use everything in the, you know, the skin and taking all the meat, but was just or, or was carelessly or, or viciously killing the deer, you know, not for food, then she would strike out at that hunter. She turned him to hmm? rock, right? She turned him to rock. Well, that's one one aspect. She could turn him to rock, or she would punish him in other ways. So, so in some of the stories, she comes after the hunter, and she comes in the form of an old hag who is begging to be let into the hunter's shelter. And she she says, you know, he says, okay, well, come on in. She says, no, no, first you must tie up your dogs. So there's this thing about the dog. Uh, the, that is very connected with the hunters. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's something if she 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 ties, he, she gets him to tie up the dog, but with one of her hairs. But if he doesn't do it that way, then the dog comes after her and she does battle with these dogs. And he can hear this terrible conflict going on outside the uh, the, the, the hut. And then finally the dogs come back to him in very poor shape, stripped of all their hair. And, of course, they don't manage to kill the Kalyach. <laughs> but, you know, there's this is this is one of the folk forms. There's so many different stories about her. Do you want to talk about the cow aspect? To the, and yes, how it ties in? Ireland in order to do that. Okay. And actually, the connection is there in Ireland most clearly because we have written literature that the monks wrote down like a thousand years ago that recorded the orature of or earlier ages. And by doing that, it was really important for linguistic analysis of the tradition because we can look at the names that they wrote down and we can see connections. So the cow aspect in the, the poem... The Lament of the Kalyach Bera, it begins with her saying, I am Bui Kalyach Bera. Mm-hmm. So she gives her name as Bui or Boi. And this is an old root in Indo-European languages that means cow. And so uh, you've got actually a very, very distant connection of this name all the way out to India, where B becomes G. You know, there's these these phonological shifts. And so the Golmata is the cow mother and so even uh, the Gaulish name for this cow goddess, she's called Bovinda. Mm-hmm. And we have this from a Greek writer that's quite old. And so if you take that apart, bo, cow, and vinda, meaning the bright one or the bright cow or the white cow. Right. And so what's really interesting is the Gaulish name Bovinda has an exact correlate in Sanskrit, Govinda which nowadays is a name for Krishna, but it's also found in the litanies of the great goddess, the thousand names of Lalita in the Sri Lalita Sahasranama. And so this is one of her names, Govinda. And so that's a very old layer to have existed in before the split before between 
the languages of the people who later go off to India in one direction and Ireland in another direction out of old Proto-Indo-European. So that tells us how old this cow mother is because you know, the Indo-Europeans were herding people. And so they, they had the cow herds. Right. All right. So Bui is her name. And other times we see it referred to as Bull. And then there's another name that occurs again with a megalithic connection in Ireland, which is Boand. And that means the white cow also. So Bovinda in Gaulish, Boand in Irish. There's no controversy about this. Linguists all agree on this. Mm -hmm. And so Bohan is connected with what we call Newgrange, but in Irish is called Bruna Bohan, which means the house of Bohan. And so house of the white cow, that's, that's the literal meaning of that ancient monument. And of course, we all know how important uh, Newgrange is. It's, it's the, one of the largest Megaliths in Ireland. It's certainly the most famous one. It's the one that has an astronomical alignment so that when the winter solstice arrives, it's angled just so that the light from the rising sun goes down the vaginal passageway into the womb of this stone chamber, and it lights up that inner uterine chamber where the dead were collectively laid to rest. And it lights up also a triune spiral that's engraved on one of the back walls, one of the back uh, boulders that's holding up this gigantic, uh, this artificial cave, which is a temple. It's an astronomical observatory, and it's also an ancestral sanctuary, not of a king, but of entire collectivities of people who were all cremated and put to rest inside of this chamber, as was true in the other Irish. Uh, we call them womb tombs. In archaeology, they refer to them as passage graves. And both of those, really, you know, you have to question the use of the word grave or tomb, because as I'm saying, they're sanctuaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's one, that's that. And then there's another bit about the... Um, the cow word that's related to another of this group. There are several giant womb tombs in the uh, along the banks of the Boyne River, which itself is comes from the name Boan. So the river is named after her as well. Um, anyway, there's Bruna Boan, and then there's Nauth and Douth, and so there are these three some of the the most important uh, sanctuaries of this type. So Nauth is an anglicization of the Irish word, which was Knokba. And Knokba means Knok, hill, ba, of the cow. So we've got that cow word again. Yes. Same like, uh, you know, Bruna Bonia. And also we have medieval sources connecting this to Bui. So, you know, this is, you know, somewhat speculative. They tend to, to kind of stretch things out. But the Jinsenjas of Nokba says that this name comes from Gnokbui, the hill of Bui or Boa. And this is referred to in several of these. The, the Jinsenjas manuscripts, it, it, they're actually texts describing the origin of names. So this is their whole preoccupation. And they can be kind of imaginative in these etymologies. They're not always correct. Uh, but 
Uh, for example, in linguistics, they would say, well, it can't really be the hill of bui. It would have to be hill of the cow. Uh, ba is the genitive of cow. All right, whatever. Same difference because we're all talking about this cow woman. The name bui is, and so is the name for the monument. And so, and, and another poem in the book of Leinster says that bui was buried at Knokba, or Nauth. This is, this is just like, you know, really old layers. And of course, all of this, we have to keep in mind that these megalithic sanctuaries were built sometime before the year 3000 BCE. And so there weren't any Celts in the territory at that point in time. We're talking about an Indo-European expansion that happened much earlier. But what happened is that Celtic people came and became the Irish, this mixture of what I call the elder kindreds and the newcomers who are Indo-European speakers. And so there's a cultural fusion that goes on there. And so some of the traditions that the ancient peoples had about these monuments may have been blended, are likely to have, in fact, become blended into the folklore around these places. And even if you were to maintain that, no, there can't be any connection, we would still have to say that this is at least what the Celts had to say about these monuments that precede them. But I think there is a real tendency to devalue the way that these different strata of populations tend to meld. A lot of the recent studies have shown us that if Indo-European speakers came into the islands, they would have been a minority. And they, there's no sign of a mass genocide, so that they integrated on some level with the people who were already there. And you have a blended culture, what Maria Gimbutas refers to as a hybrid culture. Uh-huh. So that's worth keeping in mind. Wow. So... Um... And then here's one more piece yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, the uh, There's a, a series of stories about Bui. Uh, one of them is from a clan called the Korka Leuchte, who call, claim her as their ancestor. And they're living in the Bayer Peninsula. So this uh, Bui of Beira figure is already um, in play. Now, there's a really interesting story that an 8th century, one of the oldest texts we have in Irish, the uh, expulsion of the Deshi, tells a story. Actually, you can see patriarchy going on in this story because there's a rape. A brother rapes the sister, and she conceives a boy named Cork and his twin brother Cormac. Right. And so these, these sons were fighting each other in her very womb. And when they're born, the men of Munster said, let them be burned so that the disgrace may not be in the land. But the Druid who was there at that time said, let them be given to me. Uh, actually, let be given to me that cork there yes. so that I might bring him out of Ireland and take away the disgrace. So they say, okay, you can have him. So the Druid saves his life. And he and his kaliach, his hag, bore him into an island. So they're literally taking him out of Ireland, in, in a sense. And he's reciting a poem saying how great the descendants of this child will be. 
Anyway, what's really unusual about this story is they don't name the druid, but they do name his wife, Boy. So, uh, again, that cow name, and there are various places in the Bayer Peninsula that are named after her. And one of them is Innis Boy, which is the island of the cow right off the coast of the Bayer Peninsula. And so they go there, and every morning for the next year, she's a priestess herself. Boy does a purification ritual on the baby, and she pours water over him while he's sitting on the back of an underworld cow, white cow with red ears. This is a magical cow that turns up also in the stories of Bridget. And so finally, after she's done this for a year, the curse leaves Cork, and then uh, the cow, uh, it, the, the curse goes into the cow, which leaps into the ocean and turns to stone, and itself becomes the rock called Bo Bui, the cow of Bui. Uh-huh. And then they take back uh, uh, Cork to his grandmother and convinces her to let him come back. And then he's restored. And, you know, the story goes on from there that he becomes the founder of this great clan. So there's a little bit of her magic. And there are other stories about her with a bull in this same part of of Ireland where she becomes angry at her bull. He's off chasing another cow. Yes. And so she strikes him with her slachtan, her with her staff, with her and turns him to rock. And so that's another stone. There's one of the cow and there's one of the bull that are out there on the islands. They're really the westernmost islands off of Ireland. And these islands are also connected in other stories with the god of the underworld. And so, you know, there's this idea of taking him to that to that island in a way is a, a, a symbolic death and rebirth. So that's the cow. <laughs> yes, I, I, I sort of would like to um, go back to where the different tribes, the different people come over to... Uh, to Ireland, to to England. I mean, how how did these waves, when and how did these waves happen, and uh, were they matriarchal societies, and did did women have an influence over the way these these different tribes of different origins? mixed and created cultures um, together? You know, that's a good question. And there's like a couple different answers because we're looking at two lines of evidence. One is the oral tradition that was written down of the Irish that talks about the five invasions of Ireland. And there's a book, uh, Gabala, uh, how's it go? I can't remember the Irish, but anyway, uh, the, the five invasions. And so in that story, well, let me just, just mention briefly, and the, other, and the other one is the archaeological record, which is as much of the historical record as we can get, you know, really of a concrete form. And so, uh, and the linguistic record as well, you know, because that is the fact that Irish is an Indo-European language. So we know that it's related to all these other languages, not just in Europe, but in Central Asia as well and in India. All right, 
So that the, the, the prevailing theory about the origin of those peoples is one that Maria Gimbutas put forward with her Pontic steppe origin of the Indo-Europeans. And she gives a lot of linguistic uh, evidence for this. She gives also archaeological evidence for it. And because of the stigma on her scholarship that has prevailed doctrinally in academia for a very long time, this has uh, really, there's sort of been a blockade around this. But just recently, like in the last month, a new study was published showing that the genome evidence is now in favor of her theory. And we're talking about uh, genetic evidence of excavations in Eastern Europe and in the steppe region, showing that there's a relationship between the steppe people and the Cordoware culture that she posited as um, some of the Indo-European invaders that were coming into Europe from the East. So in an archaeological framework, it's looking more and more like she's being vindicated. In fact, one of her primary opponents just gave a lecture in Oxford last month where he was saying, well, you know, it looks pretty good for her theory. I, I still hope mine will someday prevail. He wants to say Turkey was the origin point. Mm -hmm. But um, he had to concede that uh, the genetic influence evidence is supporting her. Of course, the linguists always thought that uh, Colin Renfer, this is who I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that his theory of an Anatolian origin for the Indo-Europeans made no sense based on the linguistic evidence. Okay, that's the whole archaeological piece. Right. The, in the orature, just going back to the five invasions, let's see, you have the Fororia, the Fomorians, and uh, that's the first group, and they're like a really dim they're like really so ancestral. They're like spirits that you can't really make out a lot about them, except that, um, you know, they're the, the deepest layer. Then there come the fear bulk. And the fear bulk are said to be people that did not have agriculture and, you know, considered very primitive in this oral tradition. And then, uh, you know, a group that was easily subjugated by the next group, which was the Tuahatidanan, who take over Ireland. And this name is quite interesting because it is, of course, an Indo-European name, Tuaha, meaning people or tribe mm -hmm. of the gods of Danu. And so Danu or Danon, they're giving the name of a goddess to this group. So this is the group that in Irish memory precedes the, the coming of the sons of Mil. And here we have very definitely a patriarchal invasion, uh -huh. which, according to the story, the sons of Mill come by sea from Spain. What's interesting about this is there are some archaeological and even some genetic evidence for this. There are connections between Iberia, both Portugal and also Spain itself, mm -hmm. uh, in the megalithic period to Ireland. And then even more importantly, the genome evidence once again is showing us that both Ireland and Britain have genetic connections with the Basques, who are, you know, surviving in the yes. borders of, of Spain and France. Yes. So that's an interesting piece. Anyway, the sons of Mill are described in a very patriarchal manner. They're talking almost entirely about males, you know, uh, just the name itself pretty much says it. And they're Druids. And, uh, you know, it doesn't and they fight the Tuahat de Danan. And so the Tuahat de Danan 
have many magical arts. They're shamanic people, basically, Mm -hmm. but they're defeated militarily by the sons of Nil. And then a treaty is made and the Tuatidanan go underground and they too become part of the ancestral realm. So there's all these layers happening. And I seem to have left out one invasion, but I'm not remembering what it was. <laughs> um, so the um, the sons of Mill looked very much like the Celtic uh, immigrants okay. to me, you know. And uh, this is all kind of murky. It's myth. There's been scabs written about it. But that's an outline of that story. And so what it shows us is that, is that Irish oral tradition did remember the idea that there were multiple different populations, you know, in, in Ireland. And we see evidence of that even archaeologically to some degree because there's the megalith builders or the elder kindreds. And then later on we have this this Celtic civilization with kings, with, um, you know, the the matriarchal status of Irish culture has been much vaunted, but I think in some ways we have to look at this with a little more complexity because I do think we're looking at a hybrid of several cultures. Yes. And I think that the Indo-Europeans that came in were patriarchal to a greater or lesser degree. I mean, we have that from all of the Indo-European languages, whether you're talking about India, Persia, Greece, you know, Italy, Germany, any of them. Uh, including the Celts. And if you look at some of the law codes, you'll see evidence of that. Um, you know, there's a military organization going on. There are strictures on women inheriting land in their own right, at least uh, unless if there's in the absence of male heirs, then women might inherit land. But there's this idea that war is so important that the land has to now be defended. And so, you know, Although there are women warriors, it's considered that males are are best equipped to um, to carry out that defense. And so, uh, if a woman's brothers die, then she can inherit. But sometimes you have uncles trying to take the land, and there's these various themes that show us some patriarchal elements. But the Celtic newcomers, as I was explaining before, seem to have merged, uh, intermarried with the local people and there's a fusion that comes out of that. And I think that's what gives the Celts, not just in Ireland, but also in uh, Gaul, France, Gaul mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Britain. So a more a matrifocal flavor than a lot of the other Indo-European cultures. I mean, behind that question for me is that I'm so, at this time of me too, I'm so interested in the history. Like, for instance, you were you were talking about cow and, you know, it's an insult to say to a woman, to say of a woman, she's a cow in this, in this uh, right. society. And I'm thinking about the history of the propaganda against women, the history, yeah. I mean, basically much of what you've been studying, the history of misinformation against women. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's the one place where you will see the cow not as an insult is in India, 
You know, I mean, there's the oh, whole sure. thing about the sacred cow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which they had also in the uh, in the Israelite tradition. You know, you have the the para adoma, the the red calf that is worshipped by the Israelites coming out of Egypt. You know, so uh, there, there's that story. But you're right. I mean, you know, it's just sort of like there's this there's this bestializing uh, bitch cow. You know, there's there's names that have to do with animals. Vixen, which is a female mm-hmm. fox. Mm-hmm. Bitch is a female dog. I mean, that was really what the word literally meant. But now, of course, nobody uses it that way except animal breeders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, but it, it really ties in with the degradation of women's status because we are living in a patriarchal society. Yes, and yeah. and and this propaganda, this 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 uh, furthering of misinformation started somewhere. I mean, you know, I think that this mythical degradation of women follows the political and economic shifts to patriarchy. First, you have the attempt to colonize women's bodies. You know, and this leads to treating women as things and also as regarding women as objects, as having to do with matter and not spirit. And Mm -hmm. just basically, you know, I mean, just in in the patriarchal societies we're talking about here, the Indo-Europeans, women become like livestock that can chattel, literally chattel. The same word is used for both cows and women. Oh, and here's another piece in Ireland. In classical Iron Age Ireland, Mary Condren talks about this in The Serpent and the Goddess. Uh-huh. The name Kual means a female slave. And so that becomes the unit of currency. And it was equivalent to three cows. And so women and cows as chattel were literally interchangeable. And, you know, this is before money currency. Uh-huh. And so this was, this was the unit of exchange. So that you see female bodies as, and this persists also in the Viking societies where you have this mass slave trade, especially in women as slaves. And so these are these are elements of patriarchal culture, and we can see it in other herding societies. It turns up also in Africa where you have the Lobolo uh, bride wealth being paid, and as the anthropologists observe, the woman goes direct in one direction and the cattle go in the other. So there's an exchange that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, this is all linked to patrilineal systems and the, the imperative to foreclose the possibility of matrilineage means that you have to basically institute a sexual double standard where Men can do things that women can't do because women who do those things will be stigmatized and usually severely and dramatically punished, you know, for for acting out sexually in the ways that men do. And so um, that's that bestializing of women is something that it's part of the contempt in a patriarchal society where women are no longer respected. You know, it's just a symbolic way of, of doing that. 
beast so um i i wanted to yeah to say something we're we're going to run out of time pretty soon oh, and we're okay. not going to get through this whole chapter okay. i can see it right yeah, here i know i was we going even... to i was going to propose to you that we do this chapter in two times because it's such a rich chapter i mean not that the others yeah, it's are a not chapter. yeah yeah it's so, a long so we can, can do it in two parts i would like yeah, that so yeah yeah we, that, that'd be fine so um Anyway, uh, what I wanted to touch on, because we're coming up on the winter nights here, the solstice, is that I wanted to talk a little bit about the Norse and the Germanic aspect to the old woman and to the woman ancestor, because they actually had a winter nights festival in Scandinavian societies, and um, it was named after the Deeser. And Dies is a, an interesting word. It means female ancestor in the Norse context. But we also see that word showing up in Old German and Old Saxon. And, you know, often it's being used as to mean woman or lady. But very often these are supernatural women. And so, you know, that's an interesting title because it's shared by all these different Germanic languages indicating to us that it's very, very old. But anyway... They have a, a festival called the Disarblot, which is the sacrifice for the Deser, plural. And this is something that was done at the beginning of the winter season in Scandinavian societies. And there are references to this in the various sagas and, uh, you know, various sayings about uh, these these ancestral women uh, there's a really great phrase from Snorri in the Icelandic Edda, Vil du swa diser, so will the diser. And they overlap a great deal with a lot of these other collective goddesses in Norse lore, with the fates, the Norns, I should say, and with the, um, they overlap with Valkyries, various different forms of of multiple goddesses who often occur in threes or nines in in the Norse lore. And they're protectors. And so you'll see characters in the sagas dreaming the Deser coming to them and promising them protection or giving them warnings. Uh, there's a woman in one saga who has a dream about danger to her husband. And she says to him, Dead women came to me in the night, and, you know, she's giving him the warnings. So, you know, it's and, and also they can have wolf spirits. Uh, they, they are their fates. They, they are beings that come in portent of important events. It could be a death. It could be an invasion uh, to warn their descendants. And they're also invoked in birth. So there's a beautiful passage in one of the... Uh, Valkyrie sagas that is counseling midwives that they should mark birth rooms on their runes, birth runes on their palms mm. and ask the Deser's aid. So they're being invoked as protectors in childbirth. You know, so there's a lot, a lot of those different traditions. But, you know, just with the winter nights coming up, yes. I thought it would be good to mention them. Yes. Because when we get to the next chapter, there's more about those winter nights, which I'll just touch on now, 
that are relating to other Germanic goddesses further to the south in Germany primarily, but also other German-speaking countries, Switzerland and Austria. And that is the witch Holda, or Frau Holla, or Holt, or Holda, various name, forms of that name in northern uh, Germany, who is really a blessing goddess who goes during the winter nights and flies across the lands. And snowfall is connected with her. Any kind of water really is connected with her. But specifically, they say that when she shakes out her feather bed, then it snows on earth. Anyhow, she visits homes during these holidays. And so there's this whole group, not just Germanic, but across Europe, of the old goddess, who is an old woman, a spinner, whose holiday is usually the day of Friday, and specifically the winter night season, where women are instructed by tradition, because she's a, a matron of spinning and weaving, that they must spin off all of the flax on their distaff. Empty that distaff off. That's their, their spinning one. Because this is her holiday, and she's not supposed to be working during her holiday, so you kind of have to clear the decks. And if you don't do it, then she gets angry. And there are various funny stories uh, in Germany about how, you know, if you, if, you don't, if you don't empty your distaff, then Perta will be offended and she will come and she will wipe her butt on your flax. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and, and, and various other kinds of observances around this holiday, like, for example, eating fasting foods on, on her holiday. And so dumplings and fish, for example. This is probably from the Catholic calendar, these fasting foods, but um, they've been applied to people. I think the logic of the peasantry was, well, we honor our Christian deities by fasting on Friday or whatever the, the yeah. saint's day may be. Yeah. Yeah. And so we should do the same also for our pagan goddess because, you know, on her holiday, then we will eat her foods, you know. And so these dumplings come into being. So I just thought that would be worth mentioning now because it's kind of seasonal to us. And, you know, just at the moment in time that we're in. Well, it was seasonal. Uh, uh, I was wondering, uh, what what does the, uh, uh, I'll pronounce it like Jew, Kailach, Kailach? Kalyach. Kalyach, Kalyach. What do, do the Kalyach uh eat to, uh, in order to live longer than the earth. Yeah, there's that whole group of stories. We can talk about that next time if you feel that way. Oh, uh, yeah, or we could just touch on it briefly. We have a, a minute. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, there's stories about how she had this, this great wisdom. And so people would say, they would, they would tell tales about why, how was it that she last so long you know why did she live for so many ages and one of the explanations well they she describes it various ways but one of them is the types of food that she eats and these traditions conflict we must admit so in one version she only takes cow's milk or here it's only seafood or there it's only grain and yet another story she's described as a hunter-gatherer you know, roaming over the land and gathering food at the seashore. And so there's a, a Scottish song, Little Collier of the Wild, 
where she describes her great age in the context of foraging for seaweed, garlic, fish, and nuts. And, and part of that story is interesting, too, because she says, What time the great sea was a gray, mossy wood, I was a joyous little maiden. My wholesome morning meal, the dulse seaweed, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Of the rock of Ahir. And the wild garlic of Scoth. The water of Lochachan Duin. And the fish of Yoner Mor. Those would be my choice sustenance as long as I would live. You know, and then there's other stories that she tells about, you know, um, the morning breeze never blew on my empty stomach, meaning she eats early in the morning. The dew never wet my foot before sunrise. I consumed hot and I consumed cold, and that's the reason I'm so lasting. Never ate except when she was hungry. Never stayed abed once awake. Never carried mud on her feet from yes. one place to another. And never threw out dirty water before bringing in clean. These last ones are fairy taboos that, that the Irish were very scrupulous, Irish housewives, about observing. They were believed to bring luck. And this theme of never going from one place to another without washing the mud off your feet yeah. recurs in, in other stories also, very widespread traditions. Fascinating. And never throwing out the water before you get new water. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, which, you know, is a practical measure. It makes a lot of so sense. So some of that could be, could be very old, some of these, these tales. Max, I'm so grateful for your presence on Future Primitive. Thank you with all my heart. You're welcome. And could I mention just that if Absolutely. you want the coloring book, it's, a, it's available from Valletta Press, and that's V-E-L-E-D-A dot net, and you can find it there. Perfect. And then I, I would also like you to mention where and how people can buy Witches and Pagans. Yes, the book, that's the, the same publisher, book. same website, yeah. so you can get them both there. Okay, excellent. And we will meet next time. Good, good. And we will meet next time in the new year. Yeah, and, and have part two of, of the old women. Wonderful. And the ancestors. Yes, wonderful. Okay. See you next time. Okay, thank you, Joanna.